Our Old Testament lesson this morning is found in Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 26, which I am excited to tell you is on page 84 in all the hymnals. Not hymnals, in all the Bibles. It would be weird if it was in the hymnals. Page 84 in all the Bibles, because they are now all large print Bibles. I'm glad about that. Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 26. This is the very end of the book of Genesis. And this is uh, the end of the life of Joseph. And it is kind of a, a summing up and an explanation to his brothers about what's been going on this whole time. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we do thank you for all that you have given to us. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us to hear it. Help us to hear it not for just for what it was, but for what it is. We pray that you would help us to hear it as your word given to your people. Now that as we hear your word today, that it would be um, by your word and your spirit that our hearts and our lives would be changed. That we would become more and more the people that you created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. Uh, This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Turning then to John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, which is found on page 1687 in your Bibles. This is the story we're just uh, discussing with the children a few minutes ago. Pay attention, kids. Here it comes. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. 
Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. That's how I read it anyway. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish. for They were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Over the last several months, really, we've been looking at a series in the book of Acts, seeing how it is that the early church continued uh, what Jesus, well, how Jesus continued through the early church, what he began to do and teach um, that Luke records for us in the Gospel of Luke. And now we see that in the book of Acts that carries on. And where we are now is actually at a particular section where Stephen is making a speech. Who is Stephen? Stephen is one of the people who got picked to, um, because he was full of the Spirit and full of faith, full of wisdom, to be one of those to help distribute the, the food and the goods that have been given to provide for those in need. Stephen is one who not only gets picked for that so that the apostles can devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, but now Stephen, for some reason, is the one at the center of the attack of uh, the religious leaders around. And they come, and they, uh, have it, they've got it out for Stephen. And so here's this guy who's not been set apart as a preacher, who now has to make a defense, and he has to preach. And so here's the question. For, for some of us here, <laughs> you're kind of expected to be ready to preach. But what about for everybody else who's not called to be a preacher? Does that mean you don't need to be ready to preach? Actually, no. In fact, this is something we see again and again, not only in the Bible but throughout church history, is there are all the time people being accused of believing things that? Well, what do you believe? Uh, well, I'm no preacher. <laughs> nope. You don't get off the hook like that. But everybody has to be ready. Be ready to explain what it is that we believe. Now, it's not something you need to be afraid of, though. 
What am I going to say? What am I going to say? Jesus actually tells the disciples, you don't need to worry about that. This is going to happen to you. People will put you on the spot. When you get put on the spot like this, all you need to do is trust the Holy Spirit. He'll give you the words to say that if you know who God is, if you have a living and trusting relationship with Jesus, if you've been walking with him, it's not going to be an issue. You can explain this. And this is what we see in the life of Stephen. He is somebody who is full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith. And so when he's called on, he doesn't say, you know, you should probably talk to one of the apostles. They know better than I do. I'm just serving at the table here. No. (laughs) He says, brothers and fathers, listen to me. I'm going to tell you what's been going on. And he starts, and he gives them sort of an Old Testament survey, taking them through the passage of the Old Testament and showing, and, you know, of course, as they're hearing the story, it's like, yeah, we know all this. Let me tell you about uh, Abraham. We know about Abraham. (laughs) Let me tell you about Joseph. We know. But as he takes them through, he shows how the things that they have made a priority of are not the things that were to be a priority. He shows them how person by person throughout the Old Testament, they have missed the point. And we saw that some last week with Abraham, and we're going to see it again this morning with Joseph. Here's what he says. This is Acts chapter 7. We're already midway through his speech here, his sermon. He had ended talking about Abraham, and then Isaac became the father of Jacob. Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. And then in verse 9, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. All right. That's where we're going to pause again. We'll continue his Old Testament survey later. But let's take a look at what he's talking about here with Joseph. Why does he bring Joseph in? Why does he make such a a deal about Joseph? And one of the reasons is because he's making the point that these uh, Jewish people have missed the point of their own history. And they have said, Abraham was given this promise of land, and uh, then we got in the land, and Moses was given the law, and so we have the law, and then later Solomon built a temple, and we have the temple, and these are the things that we center our whole life as a community, as a people around. And Stephen is saying, well, then shame on you. This is what he's in trouble for, by the way, speaking against the law and against the temple. But he's not speaking against them. He's not saying those things are bad. He's saying you missed the point of them. Every single one of those things was to lead you in your worship of the one true God and to help you to trust him in everything that you do. He's to be at the center of everything. He is the one who's at the center of the temple. He is the one who's at the center of the law. He's the one who's at the center of the land. And you're holding on to all those things, and you're missing him. How are you missing him? And so he goes through 
bit by bit. And he, he brings Joseph into this because Joseph, there are a couple things, because Joseph is somebody who God is with him. But where is Joseph? He's not in the promised land. And these uh, people are also holding on to uh, their own lineage. Well, we're children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel. That's who we are. And Steve is pointing out, I'm not sure that's such a great thing to hold on to. I mean, that's kind of like saying, you know, being all proud of your ancestry. Yes, <laughs> one of my ancestors was actually a prominent figure in uh, Washington, D.C. years ago. I'm sure you've heard of him. He was very close to the pre- with one of the presidents. Really, who was that? His name was John Wilkes Booth. Now, if you know your history, that's the, the guy who assassinated Abraham Lincoln. Prominent figure in Washington, D.C., close to the president. Sure, not the kind of thing you want to be proud of. <laughs> so as they are, you know, kind of puffed up with their family connection to the 12 tribes of Israel, Stephen mentions that by saying, uh, he introduces these patriarchs by saying, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. That's what they did. You want to point back to your ancestors? Let's look. They didn't do what was right. Joseph, sure, if you read his story, Genesis 37 to 50, I believe, you start in his story, and it, he begins, and he's a, an arrogant jerk. God gives him these dreams of how his family is going to bow down to him. He brings his father a bad report about them. He tells them the, uh, the dreams that he's having, and he just makes everybody sick to be around him. But the dreams that God has given him are going to come true. They are going to bound out, and he is going to be the one through whom God is going to rescue a bunch of people. So his brothers ought to say, you know, even though we don't like the idea of him being over us, we should still trust God, but they don't trust God. They try to get their own way. And so first they plan to kill him. But with an active uh, brotherly intervention, uh, they decide not to kill him, but just to, you know, sell him into slavery. Be much better. So they sell him to the Ishmaelites, who are like their second cousins, as they come by, and they take him down to Egypt, where he's a slave there. And things for Joseph kind of go from bad to worse to worse to worse. When he has the dreams originally, it looks like it's going to just be better to better to better, and that's what we all hope for, but no. <laughs> it's worse to worse to worse. His own brothers uh, sell him into slavery, convince his dad that he's been murdered by an animal. Murdered by an animal? Whatever. Anyway. Then he goes into slavery in Egypt. While he's in Egypt, even uh, the wife of the man he's working for lies about him, which gets him thrown now into prison. You think it's not bad enough to be a slave in a foreign country? Now you've got to go into a foreign prison as a slave. But then he meets some uh, other guys in prison. He, God gives him an interpretation of their dreams. And so the one who's going to be raised back to Pharaoh's right hand, he says, hey, remember me. When you get back there, get me out of here. I says, oh, no problem. And then he gets out and forgets. And so Joseph spends another two full years in prison. And through this whole uh, account of Joseph's life, it just seems like it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And the phrase, though, that keeps coming through is, but God was with him. God was with him in this situation. God was with him in this situation. And that's what Stephen picks up on when telling his story. Yes, these bad things happen. The patriarchs 
didn't get it right. Joseph kind of messed it as well early on. But God was still with him. Without a temple. Without the law. And now he's not even in the land. But God is still with him. And God is still working even behind the scenes in all the circumstances. And that is what we read at the end of Genesis. After Joseph then is raised up to power. When God gives him the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. And Pharaoh raises him up. And God gives him wisdom to rule over uh, all of Egypt and collecting enough grain that when the famine comes, they don't all die. They don't all starve. And not only is Egypt saved, but the surrounding areas are saved. And so this is why when Joseph speaks to his brothers at the very end, he's able to say this really weird line. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And what we see in Joseph's life is, one, the trajectory that we always dream of, of everything just going up, 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 better and better and better, isn't the way things generally work. For Joseph, there's an awful lot of down before he starts going back up. There's a reason for it. But another thing that we see is that the same event, Joseph being sold into slavery, that same event could be looked at in two different ways. God, looking at Joseph, this arrogant young teenager, says, I am going to save a bunch of people through this guy. But not like he is now and not where he is now. Somehow I need to humble him and get him to Egypt. The brothers don't care about humbling him and getting him to Egypt. They don't care about him being one to save a lot of lives. All they need is to get rid of him, and they don't really care how. Two completely different motives. And so what the brothers uh, intended for harm, God still takes that same thing and says, all right, this is how we'll use that. This is how we'll use this for good. And that's really helpful to keep in mind. Because what it means is, even though everybody around Joseph seemed to be conspiring against him to do him wrong, wrong, wrong. The brothers, all of his brothers, selling him to slavery, that's not okay. That's a bad thing. The, uh, the, wife, of the, woman he was work, or the wife of the man he was working for, lying about him to get him sent to prison, that's not okay. It's not a good thing. The man who promised to get him out of prison and then didn't, it's not a good thing. Like these, everybody seems, around him seems to be conspiring against him to make it worse, 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 worse. But God is with him. And if God is with you, that means it doesn't matter how much everybody else is out to get you. It doesn't. Because no matter how low they can take you, God can raise you up again. We see this, of course, in Jesus, where everybody is conspiring against him for real. And they not only treat him badly and lie about him and uh, has friends who betray him and all those sorts of things, but even where he dies, they kill him. And as low as that takes him, God is still able to raise him up. And so this is why we see at uh, the end of Romans chapter 8,
There we go. When Paul says, what then shall we say in response to these things? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? That line I read from It Is Well With My Soul. I don't know if you know the story behind the song. The man who wrote, uh, who wrote It Is Well With My Soul, his name is Horatio Spafford. And uh, the, way, the way the events took place is he needed to stay in the United States. His family was going over to England. And uh, so he sent his wife and his four daughters across the ocean. And as they were going across, the boat sank. They were all killed except his wife. His wife survived, but all four children died. So she makes it over to England, and she uh, sends a message back to him, saved alone. So now, grief-stricken, he makes the same journey. And when he gets to the place where that boat sank, the captain actually comes and tells him, this, this is where that happened. And that's where he goes back down into his cabin, and he writes this song. And he writes this song, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Now, how can it be well with his soul in a situation like that? when it seems that the worst thing he could imagine has happened. And then in this song, he includes a line that we read earlier, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Well, why is he bringing that into it? Why is he dealing in this song about this time of grief and trusting God in even in the depths of his grief, why bring his sin into it? What does the cross have to do with this? Continue in Romans 8. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, Jesus on the cross is the answer to the question, does God care? When Joseph is in, uh, in slavery, in prison, in Egypt, he doesn't know the way the rest of the story goes. He doesn't know if he's going to be raised up or not. He doesn't know that. But he knows God is with him. But what about us? When we're in the depths of whatever situation we find ourselves in, how is it that we know? And what Horatio Spafford says is, the way that I know the way that I know that none of this is going to be the end of it all, the way that I know that this is not going to destroy me, is because my sin has already been taken care of because on the cross, that Jesus took it all. And if God has given me that, then I can trust him in every situation, that no matter who all is against me, no matter the way the world has, uh, seems to be bent towards evil, I know that in the kingdom of God, that is not what wins. Paul continues. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship 
or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This This is the hope that we have. This is what sustains us through everything. This is what Stephen was trying to get across to the people who unfortunately were following in their ancestors' footsteps. Those who had gone before and are killing the very one who is God's messenger. That's what is about to take place. I do want to make sure to be clear on that, by the way. I heard an actress um, recently say, a late-night show, she was talking about, um, about Catholic saints. She talked about St. Stephen and said, you know, St. Stephen was actually killed for dissing the Jews. It's true. Look it up. I hope that as we go through this, um, series, this whole series that he's, of the sermon he's giving, this Old Testament survey that he gives, that we understand that's not true. He's not killed for dissing the Jews. He's not saying the Jews were bad and the patriarchs were bad and everything about the law and the temple and the land, is, oh, it's all bad. We need to just reject all of it and go to something else. Now he's saying all of those things were for a purpose. And the problem with those who are trying to kill him now is not that they're Jewish. It's they don't understand what their Jewishness is for. And it's for this relationship with God. And it's to be a blessing to the whole world. And it's to receive the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, known as Emmanuel, God with us. We need to not miss what God is doing in our midst. Wherever we are, however the world seems stacked against us, remember Jesus and the cross. Hold tightly to him and understand that no matter how low the world can take us, God has already shown us that he is with us and that he is committed to raising us up again. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.